Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts great comics and great comic scholars into dialogue with each other. Today, that dialogue is going to form around some sexy animals, some of them monstrous, women's sexual agency, and the cultivation of alternative sexual gazes in comics, all through a deep dive into Sarah Anderson's fangs and Mirka Andolfo's Unnatural. It's comics, it's sexual fantasy by highly prominent women creators, and it's our panel of experts navigating through all of it. Uh, I'm Dr. Andrew Duman. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, and I am joined as usual by Dr. Michael Hancock. Hello. And Dr. Anna Papard. Hello. Uh, so, Michael, can you give us a little bit of background on Sarah Anderson's Fangs? Sarah Anderson's Fangs is about a vampire and a werewolf who are dating. That's it. That's the premise. <laughs> That's also the exposition, the rising action, the climax, <laughs> the resolution in the denouement, and the epilogue, too. And yet, under Anderson's touch, it's enough. The book being light on plot isn't a detriment at all, but the foundation that gives the book a true slice-of-life sense, or afterlife, as the case may be. In Understanding Comics, Scott McCloud's famous definition of comics is, quote, juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence intended to convey information and or to produce an aesthetic response in the viewer. This definition is immediately followed by a reference to Family Circus, dismissing its single-panel approach as not a comic, but cartoon, mm. because, quote, there's no such thing as a sequence of one, which will be news to mathematics in the audience, but never mind. <laughs> that distinction never quite felt right to me, specifically for Family Circus. It was a strip that does have a sequence, but a sequence that unfolds day after day rather than on a single page. Granted, you could miss a day or read them out of sequence, but there was a sequence. The reappearance of the same characters in familiar but different combination, with familiar but different punchlines, and it's that which makes a comic different from a one-off strip like Herman or Farside. We only saw a brief glimpse into their world each day, but it was the juxtaposition that makes it a world that, pardon the kind of banality of this, puts the family and family circus. And I felt this way, instinctively rejecting McLeod's conception, even though, and this is important, I don't actually like Family Circus. <laughs> the point of this long digression is that Fangs works a similar magic for me, creating a book I like quite a lot. It's not necessarily single panel, but it's rare that the plot of one page carries over to the next. Each individual page tells a small, self-contained story, mostly following the same combination of a dance of dash of intimacy, a dash of monster, and a punchline. However, it's the book as a whole, the sum of these sequences, that turns the vignettes from cute moments into a relationship that feels sweet, kind of pure, even when its starring couples are supposed monsters. Of course, Anderson's mastery of this form, individual pages adding up to more than the sum of their parts, is not a surprise. She rose to her current prominence as a web artist, and her Sarah's Scribbles webcomic has been collected in a number of different books, including Adulthood is a Myth, Big Mushy Happy Lump, and Hurting Cats. In contrast, her artwork and fangs is a little more realistic and makes mm -hmm. excellent use of a black and white aesthetic. But it too started as a webcomic hosted on tapas, and its page-by-page -page pacing clearly works well in that medium. Webcomics have a tumultuous history over the past 20 years, from web rings to solo hosting to social media, and Anderson seemed to have mastered a working combination where individual comics are shared widely, then collected and sold in collections, well, like this. Before I move to a close, though, I want to address Fang's other great juxtaposition, the combination of murderous monsters and heartfelt moments of intimacy. Considering traditional monsters in romantic situations is nothing new, Vampires and werewolves have been embedded in paranormal romance and love triangles since long before Bella Swan enrolled in Forks High School. However, by focusing largely on the domestic bliss of Elsie the Vampire and Jimmy the Werewolf, Anderson illustrates both the couple's moments of vulnerability and happiness and their potential to break out of norms, whether it's norms of heterosexual relationship dynamics or the norm of the monster labels that are forced on them. While it may not always be successful in actually breaking these norms, 
and I'm sure that's something we'll discuss, the juxtaposition of monster and partner, moment and duration, grants the book a sense of tranquility and a sense of style. It's a vampire and a werewolf, and they love each other. That's enough. <laughs> so good. Uh, and Anna, can you walk us through Mirka and Dolfo's Unnatural? I can try. So, Unnatural, written and drawn by Mirka and Dolfo, was originally published in Italy before being translated into English and distributed by Image Comics beginning in 2018. It tells the story of Leslie, a simple pig girl facing difficult choices, or more appropriately, a lack of choices, in a world of anthropomorphic animals and totalitarian rules. The totalitarian rules are specifically focused on relationships and reproduction. In this world, everyone is equal, but... Same-sex relationships, as well as sexual relationships outside your own species, are forbidden, punishable by fines or worse, including jail, exile, and painful re-education. To be clear, in the world of unnatural, species means something different than it does in our world. Everyone is an animal person in this world, so species means uh, pig girls have to have relationships with pig guys, mouse girls with mouse guys, rabbit girls, rabbit guys, etc., etc., we're not sure from this first volume how this world deals with gender deviance more broadly, how it responds to trans or non-binary or fluid identities, but we can assume it wouldn't respond warmly. The point of all of these rules is enforcing reproduction. While citizens are free to find an opposite sex, same species partner before the age of 25, once they're 25, they're forced into the reproduction program, which finds a match for them. Leslie finds herself contending with all these rules and restrictions for a few different reasons. One, she's single and just turned 25. Two, she's been having unnatural dreams about sexing a wolfman. She doesn't know the wolf, but in her dreams, she certainly does. And the dreams seem to become more vivid every night, leading Leslie and her roommate, a mouse girl named Trish, to wonder, are they just dreams? Spoiler, they are not just dreams, but you'll have to read beyond volume one to get the full story on that. For now, this is a sexy comic about sexy animal people and their sexy desires that mortgages restrictions on sexual desire and expression to heighten its sexiness, while also making a case for the importance of sexual freedom in society and in comics, which in the American context have always been sexy, but still find their sexiness circumscribed and narrowed to appeal to certain stereotypical audiences. I think Unnatural is open to lots of gazes, but even as it very much objectifies Leslie, I'd argue it prioritizes a female gaze, encouraging identification with Leslie on her journey of self-discovery and her initiation into sexual revolution. I enjoyed it with some minor caveats that some of the plot and dialogue are a bit heavy-handed at times, but I am very excited to talk through all of the sexy aspects of this story today. Okay, so one of the things that these comics have in common is in their construction of um, these sort of sexy atmospheres that they're going for. Um, they both rely on a form of animalization. Uh, maybe I'm stretching that term a little bit in the case of fangs, where we're talking about a werewolf and a, a vampire, but certainly an unnatural. It's, it's a very George Orwell type animal farm situation happening. Um, so I guess my question for both of you is, what is this contributing and what does it do for the narrative? How does it help it advance its aims? How does it um, enrich the symbolism? Uh, and, and I don't know, maybe even just more simply than that, why can't these just be normal people that we're seeing represented? And, and maybe because it's a little bit more obvious there, we'll start with unnatural. What's your take on that, Anna? There are so many different ways I could answer that question. I mean, partly yeah. the animal hybridization enables sexual fantasies in a lot of ways. I mean... Uh, in sort of fan fiction, that kind of trope, there's a lot of different ways that it can be used. Like it can be used in a way where the animal form is like an abjectness that sort of enables, you know, whatever taboo desires. Like there's a lot of fan fiction sort of of that. And, you know, someone being transformed into an animal that allows them to sort of unleash those taboo desires, that kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. giving, giving someone like license to give in to their animality, right, is like often an appeal of that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. here, that's we have an element of that, obviously, with the dreams about the wolf guy. You know, she's sort of giving in to taboo desires very explicitly there. That is the plot of the story. But just like more generally, sort of ascribing animal features to human bodies it makes those bodies accessible by making them just slightly strange. And 
I want to be careful throughout this episode not to like essentialize female gaze or any of that stuff because again there's lots of different gazes at play here and I want to make sure that I'm not sort of putting my gaze on this text and making it that everybody has to gaze the same way and it's really difficult to talk about that sometimes because we yeah. it's so slippery like my subjectivity will slip into like me saying how it works so like maybe i'll just like put like <laughs> if i start doing that keep in mind like my gaze is limited and i'm very aware of that and i'm doing my best but um for me definitely as a woman who is into sexy comics, who's into sexy texts, that kind of thing, but often finds sort of mainstream pornography really alienating. That's actually not my thing at all. Having something like this, where there's animal features sort of added to human bodies, can make those bodies a little bit more accessible, partly by like cartoonifying them in a way, which I know mm -hmm. sounds weird because we think about cartoons as being for children, but it is sort of an accessible thing as well to like make these bodies a little bit different than normal, a little bit different than human. It makes them something that you can play with mm -hmm. with a little bit more freedom than you can play with just a standard human body. And cartooning is that in general, right? I mean, part of what interests me about sort of sex and comics is the accessibility of the medium and the way that you can sort of do things in that medium that are very different than pictures of real human bodies, right? I mean, we think about, you know, just basic stuff. I mean, you brought up Scott McCloud earlier, Michael, but I mean, the, the identification that comics engender can be so interesting when we're talking about sex and comics and the presumption with, you know, traditional heterosexual pornography is that the objectification is so extreme that, you know, it's like human relationships are reduced to like the mechanical interaction of body parts. And yet in a comic, if like identification and objectification are always intertwined, that creates interesting possibilities. And I think those possibilities can become heightened in sort of the design of bodies like this, which are cartoony, human, animal. It gives us a lot of space to play. There's a lot of different ways I could kind of go with that from there, but maybe that's like yeah. an opening salvo to get some responses from the two of you and we could break <laughs> that down a little bit more because I think it's just such a huge question. And I think we're going to have different responses to how this worked in this text as well. It's interesting that... Uh... Leslie herself is kind of a less visibly animalistic than some characters, like mm -hmm. as a human pig, uh, like the main difference is snout and tail. Whereas like, I mean, other characters have things like fur uh, and scales. Yeah, it makes them more obviously the animal human hybrid. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, we should say specifically about like what her being a pig girl does for us too, right? I mean, yeah. she's supposed to she's supposed Absolutely. to be an identifiable protagonist, right? And that's part of it. And a part of I mean, I brought up sort of the abjectness of animals before, sort of the th ways that we think about pigs as like I don't know, whatever. <laughs> like, like gross, fat, lazy, all of these things that we ascribe to pigs, but also smart. Um yeah. mm -hmm. All of that is kind of bound up in the characterization of, of Leslie, but like some of those things are redeemed through her characterization and through the humanization of her. And again, it becomes so interesting where we're talking about like someone who's a human animal person and then we're humanizing them like that can be interesting in and of itself because you're humanizing sort of the animalness of humans right you're making certain things and relationships to our bodies okay because this person has overt animalness i mean that's sort of like i don't know if that makes sense but that's sort of kind of what i'm getting to yeah. at with the, the accessibility of it because uh maybe i should sort of backtrack so like i find a problem a lot of the time being sort of a woman reading and watching all kinds of media in the sense that you can react badly to sort of every image of a sexy woman because there's just so much history bound up in that image and it's alienating mm -hmm. to the extent that you know that right like you're looking at this image mm -hmm. and you feel like you're not even allowed to find it attractive because that's unfeminist or something right it's just your desires are so policed and circumscribed by both your role in society and like the presumption that being sexy is always masochistic and can't have agency which you know is still something that we're dealing with with portrayals of women in media but also just there can be like a renouncing of those images because you don't want to feel victimized. You don't want to be put in that masochist role. 
So, yeah, like designing different types of bodies and sort of bringing that animal aspect of it and like having that grain of abjectness, but like accepting that and like making it beautiful and making it identifiable. There's a real power to that. So I think that choosing her to be like a pig girl is really, really important. Other animals could have worked, but this was definitely a very deliberate choice, if any of that made any sense. Yeah, it did. One of the things that I was kind of thinking about as you were talking, Anna, was some of the things that you've um, written about Nightcrawler before and the idea of how um, certain illustrators will keep his monstrosity forefront rather Mm. than trying to diminish it and incorporating into the sexual fantasy. So as much as Leslie is um, humanized, I mean, Michael's 100% right. She is probably the most human looking character Mm -hmm. in this entire thing. Um, I find that in a lot of the sex scenes, her curly pigtail is very specifically Mm -hmm. foregrounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that maybe speaks to that sort of um, um, alternative gaze that, that Andolfo was working with here. I, I think these characters aren't just sort of distanced from human sexuality by through that layer of irony that, that Anna's talking about. I think there's also a way that they're brought closer, again, exactly as Anna was talking about, um, by surfacing these kind of animal ideas. Like, like there's an entire sexual subculture surrounding um, this, this animalization and that kind of play. And I think it'd be you know, hard to ignore it here. I think it's clearly in play, uh, mm-hmm. even just looking at the way that this book is talked about online. But I mean, thinking too about the ways that differences are highlighted, but also modulated in this text. I mean, someone like mm-hmm. her boss at work, like the alligator guy who's like a gross and like tries to mm-hmm. lick her and harasses her and assaults her i mean yeah. i did see that with certain characters the animal traits were brought more to the forefront to emphasize their monstrousness you know their personality-based monstrousness and i mean i wonder if there's something going on here with because leslie is kind of denying her own unnatural desires as, as well right in a sense she is denying mm-hmm. her animalness which comes out when she's interacting with the arguably more animalistic body of the wolf. I mean, she's like a girl who incidentally has pig features and the design of the wolf in her dreams is like a wolf who incidentally has human features, right? Yeah. So like, I mean, he's way more animal than her. And I mean, a lot of her sort of animal sexuality, as much as the tail is visible, it's not part of, it's not touched in any of these sex acts. Like none of her sort of unusual features kind of come into play. So I don't know. I was wondering, yeah, of course. Right. So I was just wondering whether that was sort of like a deliberate modulation that says something about Leslie's character or whether it was part of that thing that I think you're bringing up, Andrew, which is that, you know, there's a bit of a scariness about that. Like if we make a character too monstrous, they won't be identifiable anymore. They won't be sexy anymore. It'll seem too much like bestiality and we want to avoid that. So like, we have to keep them on a certain side of human. Yeah, I mean, bestiality is exactly the grounds on which this text was heavily censored. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, it, it's in play, once again. Um, man, as you said, there's so many gazes, there's so many things to break down here. Uh, Michael, do you have mm-hmm. any way to kind of parse us through this? I don't know, uh, but... I mean, you must, just, have con- uh, you must have contact with sort of some of these fandoms and stuff through like your games uh, research and stuff, Michael. That is true. Um, I read a lot of... well. Uh, tangentially related to the game stuff. I read a lot of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog comics and they have embraced this kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, they go even further, like pregnant Sonic is a very mm-hmm. prevalent <laughs> fan art image. I'd never heard yeah. that. Oh, it's it's a thing. Oh yeah, um, I mean, well, I mean, male, male pregnancy like stories are like yeah. everywhere in fan fiction, so. And uh, again, when it comes to sexuality and animals, of course, the wolf imagery is very frequently played up well predator in general and i guess that's what we see here that the kind of mapping of naturality of the predator and prey onto sexual desires um it did like also occur to me that while we were talking in terms of bestiality and regulations of the book that i think part of especially the online response to it has been trying to like basically different communities trying to figure out what it means in particular for this book to be an image imprint Mm. that imprint image has this reputation that it 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 is allowed to do the things that go beyond the superhero comic but it's Mm -hmm. still like it's still a popular imprint and still has yeah like a, a kind of 
it has a range, but often sometimes kind of a narrow range of what kind of books are fit within it. And this is, I think, a move in a slightly different direction. I mean, Image is a mainstream publisher. I mean, like it's not Marvel or DC, but it's as close to it's it's as close to being mainstream as you can be without being Marvel and DC. So the fact that they're publishing this book and it's not just being published, you know, super underground on like you know an imprint that you have to order special. I mean, it matters. Uh, So (laughs) we have another form of wolf occurring in Sarah Anderson's fangs. Um, in in Jimmy, who is a werewolf, Uh, we mostly just see him as a dog. Um, yeah. What's what's your take on on that sort of animalization, Michael, and what that's adding to the story? Which, as you said in your your beautiful introduction, it's <laughs> it's a much more intimate story. Thank you. Um, I think what is most interesting, especially in contrast between these two, is that I think uh, Terry Pratchett has a joke about this somewhere that once you start talking about the werewolf, you're talking about the intermediate between wolf and human, and the dog is somewhere there mm. that uh, in Fangs, the werewolf is like, because unnatural is kind of an exploration of forbidden desire, the idea of domesticating the wolf, it's way too early in the series to even allow that. Uh, but here it's kind of front and center that yeah. uh, he's a, uh, like the dog makes him more of a cuddly figure that he still has. He's able to keep the wildness, uh, the night out with the boys when he's like running around the countryside, but uh, you get to have the more intimate, familiar uh, kind of family pet thing too. So it's, it gets to have that side and just go a little more into, Oh, isn't he a cute boy kind of approach. The particular one from Fangs, which is her asleep in her coffin, hugging him in his yes. wolf form. I did think a lot about that image in conversation with what we have going on in Unnatural, because I won't say that the Fangs image made me uncomfortable because it was adorable, but it was different in the sense that she's like a human looking woman who's hugging a dog. Like, this isn't a world in which people are human, animal people. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not really the same thing. And Mm -hmm. so that did make me wonder about bestiality questions in the sense that that is an image of, like, a woman curled up with a dog, but he's her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, again, I don't think, I'm not trying to be judgy about it or whatever, but it did just make me think like, this is a little bit different. And I was like wondering about how people would react to that and things. And yeah, just got me thinking. That's all. I just wanted to point (laughs) out the sort of grain of difference between those two things. And I mean, caveat, caveat that, you know, this is a magical world that we have in Fangs too. She's not actually human and he's not actually a dog, but in those particular moments, I mean, it feels dumb to like want to think about the mechanics of how things work in fangs because it doesn't encourage you to go there with it but i mean it does make you ask the question of like are they having sex when he's in that form well yeah they have the other comic where he like forcefully carries her into the bedroom and someone says oh full moon tonight Mm -hmm. and it's like wait isn't that when you're a wolf (laughs) Mm -hmm. so So you know it, it opens the question yeah, I'm reiterating what Anna is saying as well. Like, there's that one comic that I think is um, absolutely beautifully sequenced in terms of its timing, um, which is her changing just slightly off panel, and it's just a close up of him as a dog on the bed, and you see his tail start to wag. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very suggestive as well. But it actually um, it leads to kind of a good comp- comparison with Unnatural. Um, one of the things that's striking about Unnatural is how vulnerable the main character Leslie is, right? both in her animalization as a pig, which is a prey animal, uh, and in terms of her capability within this narrative. She's clearly the over-her-head protagonist, right? Whereas in Fangs, we're, we're getting this super powerful vampire who routinely kills, uh, is currently mm-hmm. off the blood, so to speak, but um, is still you know, very, very dangerous. What do you think that does for the dynamic, Michael? One of the issues I have with unnatural and i fully recognize that this is largely because it's the first volume in an ongoing series is that leslie is a very at least so far 
passive protagonist in a lot of ways, yeah. especially especially in comparison with her friend who is actively going out and researching the dream that she keeps having. That uh, it she doesn't come off great in that comparison. Right. It's all understandable in the sense that like she has we get a glimpse into her past that explains very much why why she would be trying hard to repress these feelings rather than explore them. But, and again, there's definite sense that this is going to change over time, but mm -hmm. yeah, it, it doesn't change the work we have in front of us in that sense. And whereas vampire uh, woman gets to have a lot more active uh, pursuit of her desires and often in ways that are very like appealing. It's a really hard question. And I thought about it a lot with unnatural because a lot of parts of it are very similar to sort of more male gazy porn comics that often involve, yeah. I mean, Milo Manara has mm -hmm. a bunch of comics like that, right. That are like about a woman becoming sex crazed and losing control and like, you know, masturbating in the street and everything. And a lot of those I am not a particular fan of. And again, this is not me being judgy. It's just my particular, it's just not my particular personal favorite thing. And a lot of those tropes are mobilized here in a woman who is sort of losing control of herself. I mean, you know, like Trish finds her in the bath, you know, making out, making with, her, out with her wine glass because <laughs> she just can't help herself. And, you know, she's like trying to have sex with her pillow because she just can't help herself. Right. But there's different ways that you can go with that. Like, I mean, it is that sort of yeah. opening her up to sort of a freedom through the fact that this is happening to her rather than something she's seeking out. It's seducing us into Leslie's dream as well. Mm -hmm. You know, because if it started out with her just like unashamedly having sex with a wolf guy, I don't know that that would be as effective in terms of seducing us into the dream that yeah, she's being seduced absolutely. into, right? So like in mm -hmm. a sense, she has to start out with like a little bit of passivity. Yeah. But I don't know. I just thought a lot about how it's specifically rendered, though, because a lot of these sort of images of her body, they're super, super objectified, right? Yes. And yet, mm -hmm. when I thought about the ways that she's objectified, I mean, even in sort of scenes where she's kissing the wolf, you know, the way his body is sort of pouring into hers and the way she's like responding to him. I mean, one of the real difficulties in thinking about how objectification of female bodies works when we're talking about you know, comic books with explicit sex in them is that you do need to have the body pictured in order to facilitate the identification. I mean, if it is mm -hmm. just her face responding to things, we're not seeing what her body is doing and we mm -hmm. want to feel like we could be in her body. And so having her, you know, handle her own breasts, stuff like that, that's part of sort of seducing us into the fantasy of being inside of her body. And it's really subtle, like how different comics sort of like walk the line between is she an object or a subject? And it's a, I, again, I think different people will read this comic differently. I think for me, the ways that her body was displayed, it was an objectification that was like about making me feel like I could enjoy the objectification that she's experiencing. And again, I would have to like break down particular pages and kind of make that argument, you know, in comparison with other similar things. But that was the sense that I got subjectively, again, mm -hmm. from kind of reading this comic book. And again, I think different people will respond differently. But that was just the sense that I had. Because I mean, even the exaggeration of her body, that's part of the fantasy, right? Like, I mean, the kind yeah. of squishy soft plasticness of the body as it's designed in this space i mean it's such an unreal body and yet i don't know yeah that's that's like part of the accessibility of this body and that's part of the fantasy of that body like to be able to have this soft squishy curvy body but enjoy being inside of that body rather than being ashamed of that body is part of the freedom that this text is offering you which is bound up in the pig metaphor and all of those other things right so I don't know. It's complicated. It's so, so complicated. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the symbols are actually connecting in an interesting way through the that vulnerability of her body, as you said, that objectifying gaze element, which I, I completely agree with you. I think that can be something that someone identifies with as um, uh, potentially almost fantasy-like. The, the idea mm -hmm. of the story is that she's vulnerable and that she's in over her head and that everyone is looking at her as a target. 
Um, mm-hmm. So having that manifest in her sexual relationship to this dream wolf as well, I, I think that really nicely blurs the boundaries between like the, the government Orwellian O'Brien type villains uh, and this sexual gaze that she's finding herself kind of drawn into. Um, so mm-hmm. I, again, I, I think all of the stuff is just intersecting in complicated ways and it's really hard to sort of draw it out. But that's one of the things I like about the book. I like the I like the complexity of it and the way that you can argue different things. I I, I find it a very imperfect text for a lot of the reasons that, that Anna and Michael have talked about. Um, but I, I kind of enjoy appreciating imperfect texts in that regard, just sort of playing with what the artist is doing. Well, I mean, part of the problem, too, when we're talking about a text that's about sexual fantasies, it's always going to be imperfect. Nobody's sexual fantasies yeah, are yeah, politically sure. perfect. I mean, that's part of it, right? Like, so that's what makes it hard to talk about these things. And I mean, you know, we have so many conversations like that in like fan fiction communities and stuff, you know, like which stories are too politically problematic? Which places can we not go to because the story is going to be more harmful than helpful? And you get to a standstill a lot of the time in those conversations because different stories can have value for different people and they're about different people working through different things. And so even something that's a politically incorrect fantasy can have a lot of value if it's about taking joy in being objectified in a way that you don't feel like you're allowed to do because that can be about accepting the beauty and the joy that's at offer in your body and feeling beautiful and Again, I I think that sort of the adding of sort of the animal element here messes with that to the extent that there is sort of an underlying message about like feeling beautiful in your own way. And, you know, sort of her size, the fact that she's thick is like brought up a lot throughout this text. And again, Mm -hmm. we can talk about the ways that that intersects with the objectification, too. I mean, a particular notable panel in this volume is the one where she has to put on the uniform at work. And she's like busting out of it. And we get like a panel of like, it just can barely contain her breasts. And she's like sort of looking at her own body and being like, oh, my God, there's a lot going on in just a single image like that of her being so aware of her body. And like the sexiness of her body is just spilling out and exploding despite her efforts to contain it. There's like a yeah. lot. And then going framed on by the narrative, like too, that. as you said. Right. Yeah. But, you know. In terms of this being sort of a journey towards agency, that's definitely part of the dream, right? I mean, she's the prey in this situation, and we do have the scene of, like, the wolf eating her, and then, of course, she, like, stabs him as well, right? So Mm -hmm. learning to understand her own desires is sort of about learning ways that she could take agency within those fantasies, too, right? Yeah, and I think that's, again, where the visualization comes in, because the way her body is represented in the dream sequences is a much more confident and capable Mm -hmm. individual than what we see with her, you know, usual body posture out in Mm -hmm. the real world. That's a good point. Yeah, between the that dream sequence you just mentioned and the scene uh, where she puts on the uniform and is simultaneously judged and lusted after. Yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, that's. Yeah, both of those scenes are great in, uh, as counter to my uh, agency complaint that both of those are about her like pushing back against people who are trying to remove her consent in one way or another. Being able to feel sexy in the body that she has is like a rebellion against the shame that people try to make her have about her body, right? You know, her body mm-hmm. is too curvy, her body is too thick, her body is basically too femme and too female, right? So, I mean, all of those things are bound up in her enjoying the sexiness of her own body. And, you know, scenes like sort of the casual nudity of like the bath, you know, Mm. where like her breasts are very visible and very there, but it's also very casual, are sort of part of how her body becomes more identifiable than just strictly traditionally objectified, I think. Yeah, we could argue like ideal ego or or whatever the name of that theory is Uh, again it's 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 about the reader's fantasy i don't know Mm -hmm. i I think in both cases um um elsie and and maybe even jimmy and leslie like i thought all these characters were very identifiable Mm -hmm. Um, uh, okay so um maybe related to what we were just discussing we've got two texts that are very popular uh, and that represent a maybe specifically um, you know, chronological generational experience uh, where Unnatural gives us the story of, you know, um, a pig girl who's always broke and living has to live with a roommate and is in over her head and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Sarah Anderson's Fangs engages with a lot of sort of pop culture uh, in representing both its intimacy and its relationships. 
So I guess my question is to what extent these two texts are chronicles of an era or an experience and how that might inform the other elements of the text that we're talking about. And I, I think maybe Sarah Anderson is maybe the best place to start here, since, again, this is um, a comics writer and illustrator who's kind of taken the world by storm a little bit mm -hmm. and is specifically identified um, with millennial culture. Um, so what's your take on that, Michael, even though she's drawing on these sort of older monster stories to some degree what do you see kind of millennial-ish-esque about fangs well there's an absolute i mean in in terms of the relationship being depicted there i think there's a pretty like this is i think you could make the complaint that this kind of in some ways comes down to a you know this is a relationship between two cisgendered white heterosexual like people and to an certain extent to a certain extent, the monster metaphor only goes so far, but I think it, mm. the equality between them like comes out very clearly that this is a relationship between equals, even if uh, she is maybe much older than he is. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that insistence that this is a partnership, I think comes out very clearly. Uh, and as well, like this is a case where form speaks to content of it as well that yeah. this is a web comic and kind of embraces the virality that's associated with that that you could take most of these pages and just tweet them out and yeah they, they work well segmented like that and in that sense also kind of work with how whatever the millennial uh, assessment of viral and comics like it utilizes that to good effect as well. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was thinking <laughs> of like that kind of millennial stuff because I was thinking of sort of some of the Sarah Scribble stuff in con in conversation with like that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I was remembering like one that was like a millennial in like the old age home and is like talking to a dog <laughs> that passes in like doggo speak. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and no one, it was just like, don't worry about her. But um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything smarter about it to say than what Michael already said so well. Other than I did find it interesting the way in their relationship, they're not dealing with any of the kind of problems that traditionally adults in relationships like deal with. They're not dealing with houses or kids or like jobs or any of those things. It's all sort of interpersonal things that they're sort of working through. So, I mean, in that sense, if I'm going to think about it broadly as a representation of, I don't know, a relationship that's different, that there has different goals than sort of a tradition, a quote unquote traditional relationship from some earlier era, whenever that was, as though relationships were ever traditional in any era, because obviously they weren't. Yeah. Uh, like, I think there's a greater mainstream of the anthropologic, like the animal, we watch things with animal creatures that are human all the time, but considering them as sexual beasts more openly, I think is becoming a more mainstream thing. And the book reflects that aspect. I think there's a millennial stream to that as well. Yeah, the the generation that grew up on Fox Robin Hood is that. <laughs> yeah, or, and even like younger. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. People who grew up with the sexy uh, video game animal mm -hmm. cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. You know, Unnatural obviously has like a lot of direct sort of tie-ins with millennial culture, as you already observed, kind of in asking the question, Andrew. And I mean, I don't, that's sort of the most obvious part of the story. So like, I don't know how much I even like really have to say about it other than obviously a lot of her anxiety is surrounding what is the right way to have a relationship and how to have a right relationship, a natural relationship, a good relationship, a like smiled upon relationship is so tied into her identity. I mean, there is an interesting mm -hmm. aspect of it where you get taxed more sort of when you're not yeah. in a relationship. And I thought that aspect of it was really interesting because that actually is a pretty salient critique of the way that <laughs> tax systems <laughs> tend to privilege traditional relationships. I mean, I just was hearing some CBC documentary the other day on the radio about, you know, a couple that sort of had adopted an older friend and they were living in sort of a 
not a sexual triad, but sort of a family triad in which they're not technically related and they can't file taxes together because that's not allowed under Ontario taxes. I mean, so what are they going to do? And that's completely unfair because they're just being completely left out of the benefits that they would have if they were related by blood or marriage. And so I did find that aspect of the critique really interesting, the way you're sort of forced into poverty if you refuse to enter into traditional relationships that society and specifically the government and the leader, you know, deems beneficial to that society. Because yeah, I think there's lots the of critiques we can have can about. Yeah. Relationship. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like that's because, what I mean, it was designed for originally. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Right. So, I mean, yeah, I thought found that that aspect of the critique particularly salient, but there's definitely places to critique the heavy handedness of other aspects of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. At the same time, any kind of satire like this is going to have elements of heavy handedness. And for me, the yeah. way that the story plays out on a character level is what elevates it. Cause like, if you just describe the plot of this to somebody, they might be unimpressed. And I think if they like see it with the art and sort of the characterization that comes across in the art, that's really what elevates it. I mean, yeah. the one critique, like the one strong, not strong critique, cause that sounds horrible, but to the extent that I have a strong critique of unnatural, it would be some of the dialogue. I mean, it's, and I don't know how much of that's getting sort of lost in translation. Trans- yeah. So like, so like, I don't want to be overly hard on that. And like stuff like the plot with Trish kind of investigating the mystery and she just finds the author of this book and goes right to his house. And he's like, yeah, I have a whole bunch of notes on this. Do you want to just take it? And she's like, yeah, sure. Like that was way too easy. All of that was way too direct and easy. And I'm assuming it's kind of going to get complicated a little bit in subsequent volumes, but still that happened way, way, way too quickly. I mean, you think about a similar storyline that happens in Saga with like the science fiction writer and everything and how long it takes to kind of find him and sort of unravel some of that. And this in Unnatural happens in like two pages. <laughs> so like that would be like my minor critique of it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else I would no, want to say about kind of the millennial culture thing. I mean, it's definitely got that element, you know, uh, there's a few tropes at play you know she's got like a gay best friend and like the super like helpful female roommate and like a lot of those things but again sort of the complexity and the value of it comes out in sort of the characterization within the story at hand yeah i, I agree it's i, I mean I, I forgive it a lot of those things just for being a 12 issue series that's yeah. that's not enough to do a dystopia yeah. but at the on the other hand like i agree with everything you're saying there, there's a subtlety that's lost. And I think it doesn't do itself any favors by constantly evoking Orwell. Um, well, I mean, I love the high better. concept, like let's mash up Orwell's two biggest novels. Like, yeah, that's right. a great idea. Right. And yeah. bring that sexual component to animal farm. As, as long as we're airing uh, grievances, I was also not fond of the, um, well, by the end of the first volume, most of the supporting cast has been murdered. Yeah. Uh, which feels like a loss of potential, but. Yeah, I had feelings about that too, but again, didn't want to be that hard on it because I know that that had to happen in certain ways to set up what comes next. But yeah. anyway. The only thing that I, I would maybe add to Fangs is I, I think that the participation in werewolf and vampire culture is actually, I mean, it reads to me as weirdly millennial. Like it, it feels like Elsie um, and Jimmy are kind of almost doing cosplay sometimes. Uh, I, I think that makes the um, sort of supernatural elements of the world a little bit more um, true to form in a really weird way. Well, I wonder I if sort of, the metaphor of like being a vampire and being undead and being arrested at a certain age, maybe like a sort of on the nose thing <laughs> that we could apply to the sense of being a millennial, you know, we never grow up supposedly, which, you know, like, which is, is a negative or a freedom, you know, depending on how you look at it. Cause I mean, you know, one of the things that Leslie is obviously struggling with is, you know, she's getting older and like, what does getting older look like and what should getting older look like, you know, what yeah. should adulthood be? And that is, you know, the big struggle of like millennialness and, you know, the generations after us as well are going to struggle much. Like, I, it's so funny to even talk about millennials anymore. I'm just like, we're not young. Like it's not, we're not at the center of this conversation anymore. Like, what are we even talking about? But I don't know. Yeah. These terms there's, have there's gotten very confused at this point. In that book, yeah. for sure. Yeah.
Okay, so one of the things that strikes me as is interesting about these two texts is um, comics, as we know, are a traditionally male-dominated medium um, where female creators are not featured prominently, let's say, to you know put it kind of mildly. Um, both of these female creators are at the absolute top of their field. They're treated with the highest regard. Mirka Andolfo's Unnatural is specifically sold as Mirka Andolfo's Unnatural. And if you think of female comics creators, that actually doesn't happen very often. Um, and, and Sarah Anderson, I'm pretty sure everything she publishes for the next few years will be um, published as Sarah Anderson's um, for a lot of the same reasons. Now, both of them are regarded as being um, absolute masters of their form. Anderson, for her pitch-perfect timing, um, often used for wit and Sarah's scribbles, and to, here to different effect. Uh, and Andolfo, for her aesthetic, she's regarded as one of the most beautiful comics illustrators currently working. Um, although some people pointed out that her ability to um, um, tell a story, like a set of scene visually, isn't as strong uh, as other comics masters in that regard. But again, both are on their way up, let's say, so they have lots of time to develop. Um, so what, what's our take on what the artistry is, is bringing here? I know, Anna, you've already talked a lot about um, Unnatural's reliance upon that, that, that visual component to, to really elevate it. Um, but did you have anything else you wanted to say about Andolfo's style? Yeah, I mean, it's a soft and fluid style, which I hesitate to even say those words. I'm like making a face as I say that because I don't want to like essentialize sort of the femaleness of it. And it's very tempting to do that when you're talking about sort of mm, a sexy romancy story that is told from a female perspective by a female creator and all of those things. And yet... There's a truth to that in the sense that even when I think about something like, and like I did mention this before, but you know, a scene, one of the dream sequences where she's kissing the wolf and their bodies are sort of very fluid and merged. I mean, when I think about the ways that kisses are often portrayed in a superhero comic, there's a kiss that they often do where it's like one of those kisses where like hips like slam together violently. And like, that's like the kiss that they do. And it's a very like... <laughs> male kiss to the set in the sense that like the kiss is all like about power and kind of like mm. bodies like colliding and everything right and that can be super sexy too I don't want to essentialize that like I mean you know <laughs> Like, as, as Jack Black says, you know, sometimes you got to fuck her hard and sometimes you got to fuck her gently, right? That's like, you know, both of these things can be sexy at different times, right? So I'm not trying to be like, like one thing is better than the other thing. And yet the fluidity in sort of the embraces and sort of the sexual moments in, in um, Unnatural definitely came across to me. And I mean... Mm -hmm emphasis on softness too you know he's a very masculine body the wolf body but you know the fact that he's furry the fact that he's soft the fact that like she's sort of embraced by all this softness of his body in like these various poses you know her artwork does such a wonderful job of kind of communicating that such a beautiful kind of flowing line to the way she draws and I do think that matters to sort of the type of physical sexual fantasies that this text is kind of communicating and again that can be appealing to lots of different desires and lots of different types of bodies but it is tempting to describe that as female in certain ways i hope that that's fair to say all i can think of with a jack black reference is the <laughs> recent news that he's going to be playing bowser in the mario movie oh which God. is a whole other <laughs> level of like monstrous bodies and yeah okay um <laughs> It's really interesting in Fangs how this is a visual style that's fairly different from what Anderson is known for in yeah. uh, her other webcomic. And like, but still very well applied, very striking. I think the fact that their bodies are a little more to the realistic side of the spectrum makes especially the affection between them, the comedy of them responding to moon or sun and so forth it brings that out more and it's so excellently paced on the page uh yeah i know with the since i started with family circus there's a comparison to the daily strip but i think what it really reminded me of was more the genre of kind of manga the gag strip manga mm -hmm. or manga because it's so like well paced to the individual page that it flows in honestly a way that is more appealing than the daily strip usually is yeah 
Do we have uh, like favorite ones from this sequence in terms of timing? Because I think my favorite one, I think it's my favorite of like the entire Fangs series is the one where she first sees him in his wolf form. And it's the timing is so perfect in that one because it's set up like she's going to be horrified. And then he's lying on the couch in his wolf form. And she, there's just a panel of her just with the most overjoyed, adorable expression, just surrounded by cartoon hearts. <laughs> it's just really, really wonderful. Yeah, I'm standing by my um, um, the, the dog, watching her undress one, and just the slightest yeah. wag of the tail. It's mm-hmm. so delicate, but it works perfectly. And that's really hard to do in comics, you know, like to be a oh, master yeah. of the gag strip, because the challenge that you have doing a gag in comics, like a physical gag of any type or, you know, just timing in general, is that obviously the reader can see the end of the sequence and the beginning of the sequence at the same time. So to make that effective, despite that limitation, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of skill. My personal favorite, uh, I think, is the one where he uh, explains the he's well, he, he does a kind of cliched, uh, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual and goes on about that. And there's kind of a almost silent panel. And then she goes, I worship Satan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those pauses. She does a lot of them. They're really effective. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how that usually works, you know, even like going way back to early newspaper comic strips, but sort of that moment of pause before yep. sort of the the climax of the action or because you can do you can put it at different points in a sequence obviously like if you think about a traditional four panel like newspaper comic strip you know and again this goes way 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 back to like the origins of the form but you know you can have the pause at the beginning to kind of set up the action you can have the pause sort of in the middle of the sequence and you can have the pause at the end and you can produce different humorous effects depending on where you put the pause but the pause is such an important feature of that type of comic strip and she's just really a master of that so um, these texts have been um, interestingly received. Anderson's Fangs has been universally beloved, bestseller, Eisner Award winner. And Dolfo's Unnatural got a lot of um, sort of mixed reviews that were often identifying very divergent things uh, in terms of what's good or bad about the text. And as I said, it was met with a great deal of controversy for its more frank sexual material, even though Fangs has a certain frankness as well. It's just, it's, you know, um, subtextual. So, Anna, as someone who's read around a little bit on how Andolfo's work was received, what's your take on the way that people are interpreting it in different lands? Is it just the chaos of this book, as we've maybe already intimated, or is there other things happening? I think it's a very difficult book to talk about within the confines of how comic book reviews often are. There's a lot of great comic book reviewing out there. I write comic book reviews. I read lots of great comic book reviews. But at the same time, sort of ranking this book within the one to 10 system of like websites that are customarily reviewing superhero comics, it would be difficult to kind of compare this within that framework. And some of the reviews of this comic that sort of I've run across are really interesting to the extent that there's an obvious confusion about the gays. Like, people are angry at the book because why is this woman always thinking about sex? Why is she so bound up in, like, all of this reproductive rights stuff? It's like, God, isn't there anything else going on in this world? And you're like, yeah, if you were a woman within this space, seems like those are things that you would be thinking about. But, I mean, so <laughs> I don't you, you see that all the time, though. Like, any sort of film that prioritizes a female perspective, there's, like, always sort of reviews by certain male reviewers that come out that are just like I just don't understand the perspective of this movie and it's like yeah you don't understand the perspective of this movie because it's not your perspective and you're not used to watching things that aren't from your perspective and you think it's bad for that reason I mean that's like an obvious thing that happens and that relates back to sort of your discussion about female creators and sort of how they you know fit within an industry that hasn't prioritized female creators for much of its industry at least in the American context and again Unnaturals, an Italian comic, but published as we're reading it in an American context. So like there's that, but the more complicated part of that is just, it's a lot to capture like the diversity of gazes like at play in a text like Unnatural in the context of just a short comic book review. I mean, you have to contextualize it within the history of of, like sexy representations in comics and no matter what you write about it, it's going to be limited by your own gaze, right? I mean, 
Maybe it just didn't appeal to you. And if it didn't appeal to you, you have to do a lot of work and empathy trying to figure out who it might appeal to. You have to talk to people. You have to read other people's writing about it and kind of situate it within those things. And so it's a challenge to write about a text like this because it's not good or bad. You know, it's a text that's offering certain fantasies that are going to appeal to certain people in different ways and appeal to multiple people in multiple ways. So deciding whether that's good or bad, it's just an inherently super subjective book, I think. And I think that's its big strength. But I think that that would also make it a book that's again, sort of resistant to some of the simplicity inherent in producing a review that's going to say whether something is good or bad. Ideally, a review shouldn't do that. A review should sort of meet a text on its level and try to consider what it's trying to do and whether it succeeds on that front. But realistically, sort of a lot of review sites and structures aren't always set up to do that as effectively as they might. Yeah, I think I've always kind of said in my classes that um, when I teach the literature course that I want students to like roughly 70% of the books that we teach, because if everybody Mm -hmm. liked it, it's not likely worth studying. And Mm -hmm. I I like Andolfo for being polarizing uh, in that sense. But Sarah Anderson, on the other hand, is not polarizing at all. Um, She's part of this like broad, as Michael mentioned, um, social media viral phenomenon. So when, when you see something like Fangs come out as um, maybe the crest of that wave of Sarah Anderson fandom, Michael, how does that for you affect your interpretation of the text and maybe even some of its its potential in terms of things like uh, artistic achievement or anything like that? In video game uh, scholarship, there's like an emphasis on how kind of in the equivalent of the mainstream superhero stuff versus everything else uh, in video games, there's kind of an equivalent of the kind of console gaming versus mobile gaming and mobile games in particular are one of the ways they're conceptualized that really speak to me is as interstitial devices that is devices that we kind of fit a play in between moments of our lives it's not supposed to be it doesn't have to be an experience we sit down for hours doing the same thing over and over and i think her Anderson's approach, the viral comics approach, like speaks to an interstitiality as well that you can, you can read this for an hour or so if you want, but you can also just integrate it into the rest of your life in a more easily digestible way. And I think that speaks to an interesting role for comics. And again, some traditional aspects there in the comics daily strip but also something that works well with the new media we are making part of our lives Hmm. that that's like a fat like i was really thinking about the comparison to unnatural as you were sort of describing that so perfectly michael and in comparison like the the way that you engage with like a book like unnatural is almost completely the opposite it is an engrossing Mm -hmm. narrative that is meant to be engrossing it is, it's a porn comic. I mean, it's a masturbatory comic. It is encouraging sexual fantasies. It is encouraging you to spend time with it in private, to be indulgent, to like give in to its sensual atmosphere. Like it's a book that I wouldn't particularly want to read in public on the subway because (laughs) I want to be free to study the images that I want to study. And I probably want to do that in private, maybe at night. Right. And that's so the opposite of something like Fangs or Sarah's Scribbles, where it's just like you can just have it on your social media and scroll by it and be like, oh, isn't that cute? And kind of like appreciate the artistry of it. But like, yeah, exactly what you're saying, Michael. It's so much easier to engage with and like it's less guilty to engage with because you can engage with it so quickly. And I wonder how much that is bound up in that being universally praised versus the sort of more mixed reaction to unnatural, which gets at a lot of our our insecurities about like not just sexuality but like about like time and work and how much Mm -hmm. like we are able to like sit down and engage with a text and enjoy it versus you know having to just engage with the text as like a flickering thing throughout our workday Okay, so that's it for us this week, other than to, as we always do, make some recommendations of comics that we think somehow connect to the material that we talked about today that we'd like to encourage you to explore further. Uh, And we'll start with Michael on this one. Uh, I would like to recommend a book, 
or a comic that's kind of between our two readings today. Uh, Chester 5000 XKXYV by Jess Fink, which is a, uh, well, basically a pornography webcomic about a mad scientist who makes a robot so his wife won't nag him as much. And uh, that goes in a direction uh, he did not anticipate. And Anna, how about you? Um, Michael's recommend. I didn't have a good one. And then Michael's recommendation put me in mind of the thing that I should recommend, which is Colleen Coover's Small Favors, which is mm. self-described as a girly porno comic. Um, it's sort of about a woman who has a relationship with um, <laughs> like an embodiment <laughs> of her own ego. It's sort of like concepty, but like also <laughs> just very sexy and like a very accessible and fun and joyful way. And there is a definitive collection of it now that you can buy digitally or in hardcover. And yeah, I definitely recommend it. Nice. I'm going to recommend Money Shot by um, Tim mm. Seeley, who you might know from his Nightwing work, uh, Sarah Beatty, and many, many others. Um, I, I love the concept of this book more than I've loved the concept of any other book. It's a group of academics in a world that has an anti-science government, uh, and they want to explore the stars, but the government is too restricted for that. And they figure out that grant writing is hard, so the best thing that they can do is to become porn stars who um, basically seek out aliens to have sex with them, and it becomes this incredible indictment of the Academy, which I find hilarious just working in it, and a literalization of the Star Trek sexual subtext, you know, where it's like Kirk goes from planet to planet, finds aliens. These people are literally looking for that in order to make money <laughs> so they can continue their research. It has some diminishing returns because the concept is great, but it doesn't really go very far with it. Um, but it is absolutely delightful to check out as like the first volume. So I would recommend that highly. Uh, and next month we will be back with some adaptations of Frankenstein just in time for cruising on that post Halloween bliss. Uh, we'll be looking at Junji Ito's Frankenstein and we'll be looking at Disney Frankenstein starring Donald Duck uh, by Bruno Enna, Fabio Saloni and Luca Marley. And we hope to see you then.